If you have your Bibles to open up to um, to Exodus chapter 19, that's where we're going to start. We're going to be in Exodus and then Joshua, and we're going to eventually get to Judges, which is our main text for this morning. And uh, we don't do this every Sunday, but this Sunday I'm going to, any Sunday you can ask me to pray for you, obviously, but... Uh, this Sunday after the service is over, I'll stay up here after the benediction, and my hope is that at some point during the, the sermon, God stirs in some hearts, and you just may want somebody to pray with you. So I'm extending that invitation now, trusting that God's going to do his work in the next few minutes, and and it just may be helpful to have, have that movement to come up, to have somebody pray for you about something that, that the, the Word of God challenged you with this morning. And before we begin, let's uh, let's pray together. Lord, where everybody here is uh, leaning in, myself included, trying to be a good listener of your word, to to be open to your examination of our soul this morning. And so, if we're not, I pray that just by your divine hand, you would break through the the hard heart, a mind that's uh, preoccupied with other things that won't be as important as what you have to say to us in these next few minutes. So would you uh, prepare the hearts and then would you deliver your message? We, we all pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we dive into the book of Judges, I, I want us to remember what's the game plan uh, God has rescued his people out of Egypt, the Hebrew people, the, the Israelites, and Moses that was the leader, led them out of uh, across the Red Sea into the wilderness and 40 years in the wilderness. And as we talked about last week, then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And so the game plan, if you look with me in Exodus chapter 19, is pretty easily laid out by Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. He says, he just, he's reminding the people, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. See, you were there. You saw what happened. You saw how I rescued you, and I bore you on wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, so now I'm giving, I've rescued you. Now I'm giving you my law. I'm giving you my commandments. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be for me, very interesting phrase, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the game plan, as we saw, was God's rescuing a group of people. He's bringing them into a particular place, and he's giving them laws or commands on how you should live now. And the reason you're going to live in this different way is because it's God-honoring, but also you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a very fascinating phrase, meaning you're going to be the person who stands between God and the rest of the world, and you're going to be pleading to the rest of the world to help them know God. And so as priests, we're representatives of God. And God's trying to fashion a people who are going to represent him. They're not going to save anyone. They're going to show someone. 
Helpful distinction as, as a kingdom of priests. Not only here in Exodus, Peter calls the church now this kingdom of priests. We're not here to save anyone. We're not going to save anyone. I'm not going to save anyone. But collectively, we're all here to show someone. And we're trying to show the person of Christ as the way we live, the way we behave. As people encounter us, they'll say, okay, I'm not just looking at Paul Phillips. I'm not just looking at you. I'm not just looking at the church. I'm seeing something of the person and work of Christ. All right, so that's the game plan. Bringing these people into a particular land, this little stretch of land known as Israel, maybe 80 miles wide and 250 miles long. Very tiny stretch of land, and they're going to be there, and there's going to be great powers to the north and great powers to the south and they're going to be this little strip of land that everybody comes through israel they'll say i saw the lord because of this kingdom of priests who lived for god they showed me something different so joshua leads them into the land and then we get to joshua chapter 24 which is what i want you to turn to now the very end of joshua 24 verse 14 He gives this very powerful speech. He's been the military leader. He's the one who who brought them across, and they've occupied the land, and we're getting to the very end of his life, and he gives this last speech, 24-14. Some very familiar words here. Now, therefore, fear the Lord God and serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness and put away the gods that your father served beyond the river. And in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what does it say? We will serve the Lord. So this is this last speech for, for Joshua. And notice in these, just in these couple of verses, the word serve is used seven times in two verses. So there's several things that Joshua wants to know us to know here, but one of the primary things he wants us he wants us to know is that human beings were created to serve. Human beings were created to worship. The question isn't will you worship? The question is what will you worship? It's in our DNA as human beings to be people who worship. So everyone is going to worship something or someone. It's not a question of whether you will worship. It's a question of what you worship. And so let's just say this is your very first time to to church. One of the things I'd want you to know from this text is that one thing that you need to know is that you were designed to worship. It's in your DNA. It's not something you can say, I'm just not going to worship. The question is, what is it you're worshiping? What, what's at the center of your solar system? It could be yourself. It could be someone else. It could be something, an object. It could be your pleasure or comfort. It could be money or wealth or uh, academics. It could be any number of things. But everybody has something or someone at the very center of their universe, and that's the thing that they worship. That's the thing that they serve. So everyone serves somebody. And then in these verses, Joshua gives a warning. Notice the warning. There's going to be fierce competition for your worship. 
First of all, there's going to be the gods that your father served. This is Abraham. So up north of where Israel is, where you think of Assyria or Babylon, Abraham came from a culture that served different gods. And the people were familiar with those gods. And he's saying, see, you've got some competition up here. And then, of course, you came out of Egypt to the south. And there were all kinds of gods that you might want to serve there. And then now you're in this land. God has brought his people not out of the world, but sandwiched them in the world to live differently. And Joshua is saying, hey, you know what? There's competition to the north. There's competition for your worship to the south. And then there's gods the Amorites are serving. You're going to always be surrounded by competitors to your worship. There's always going to be somebody out there saying, worship me. This is, this is what should be at the center of the year universe. I don't know how many of you have ever been to New York City and you've been to, to Times Square. It's a fascinating place to stand. But if you stand there, you notice there's just giant billboards of all kinds all surrounding you, always trying to get you to do something, to come somewhere or buy something or see this play. It's just fascinating. And everybody's got a bigger billboard and flashier lights. And that's exactly what Joshua is saying, is there's always going to be competition for your worship. And he's trying at the very end of his life to say, the, the competition is going to be fierce. And you need to have a, a dedicated resolve that for as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're, that, we're going to be focused in on the Lord. We're going to drown out all the other noise of the competitors. And so you need to sense the urgency of Joshua's warning. Put them away. Choose who you will serve. And you also have to understand here, Joshua is talking about people who've already been rescued out of Egypt. He's not talking to the outside world, he's talking to the inside world. He's talking about a people who know God, who've been rescued by God, who've been brought into the promised land. He's saying, you people that know who God is, there's still going to be competition for you to worship other people. So the message Joshua is bringing is to, he's bringing it for people inside the walls. This isn't a message primarily for people outside the walls. All right, so you, you've got a game plan. The game plan is to bring you into this new nation, and this new nation is sandwiched in the world, and you're going to live differently. And as you live differently, people are going to see you and say, I've seen someone else. I've seen the Lord. And then there's this warning from Joshua. It's going to be hard. There's going to be all kinds of competition when you move into this land. There are going to be uh, competitions to the north and the south, competitors for your worship, even inside the land that you're living. But make sure... That you and your house, you serve the Lord. You choose to put away the other gods and you serve me. Okay, so are we all on the same page? All right, that's a big introduction to get you to Judges. So we're turning from Joshua now to Judges. And Judges, we want to ask ourselves, well, what happens after Joshua dies? Joshua dies in chapter 24. You turn the page, you get to Judges. And it answers, well, what happens? And what happens in Judges is a sad cycle. It's like your iPod or whatever you listen to music on. It gets stuck on repeat on a, on a song you don't like. And it just repeats a cycle. And the cycle lasts for 350 years. How would you like to listen to the same song for 350 years? 
It's just stuck on repeat all the way from Judges 1 to Judges 20. It's 350 years. And the first half of the cycle, read with me, Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel, these are the people that Joshua left behind, or the, the people he just exhorted. And the people of Israel did what was evil in sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals or the other gods. They, they, they went after the competitors. So sad. Verse 12. They abandoned the Lord. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them. And God sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. They get captivated by the competitor. They're standing in Times Square, knowing they should follow after the law, after the Lord, but some competitor, some billboard seems attractive, and they say, you know what, I'm going to go after that. And when you think of this word abandoned, it's best not to think of it as, we just forgot God existed. Or we just didn't know about God anymore. The, the abandonment that uh, the judges are talking about here is the kind of abandonment. I, it may be really hard for you to imagine, but it's the kind of abandonment that I want to hold on to God and also want to grasp hold of the world. Does that make sense to anybody? I don't know. That may be hard for you to imagine. But the, what they're, happen, they're saying is, oh, we know God exists. We know we've actually been rescued. But he's just sort of for like, when I get to heaven, but while I'm here, I want to chase after the world. Does that make sense? I know I'm stretching your imagination to imagine that. But that's the kind of abandonment that's happening. Oh, we know who God is, but he's going to be on my shelf. And while I'm here in the world, I'm going to chase after all the things of the world. I'm going to go after all the competitors because that's for right now. And I'm interested in what's happening to me right now. It's kind of like a married man coming home to his wife and saying, you know, I love you. I'm married to you, but I'd love to chase after other women. Is that OK? Uh, no. That wouldn't that wouldn't be OK. And it's not OK with God. It's not okay that you hold on to him and chase after things of the world. That's not okay. And listen to verse 14 and 15 again. And fasten your seatbelts. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, God, gave them over to plunderers. God sold them into the hand of their enemies. God did this. The people of God, the people of God are in distress. Why are they in distress? Because God delivered them into distress. Or sometimes that distress comes from different ways, but this particular way, God is delivering his people into this time of distress. God 
is the cause of their pain. We're going to hold on that for a second and notice this second cycle. Judges chapter 2 verse 19 or verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge, and when you think of a judge, you need to think of a general, a military commander for them. So the people are crying out. Uh, Look back with me at verse 15, the very end of 15. And they were in terrible distress. So the Lord, verse 18, raises up a judge for them, and the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemy. So he sends in a judge, the military leader leads them back out all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who who were afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods serving them and bowing down to them. See, this is a sad cycle, 350-year cycle. We, we go after the competitors. God hands us over, so to speak, to the competitors. We become miserable because we realize that's really not where we're meant to be. We cry out in distress. God sends in the judge. He rescues us. And you'd think we'd say, okay, we're done. We're done with that. But as soon as the leader leaves, what do we do? We'll go right back. And that's the cycle. That's what's happening here. And so when you get to this this uh, place, it's just a, a terrible downward spin cycle until you get to Judges chapter 21, the very end of the book. And you can turn back with me to the very end of Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, this is after the last judge is there. In those days, there was no king in Israel And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, it's a a downward cycle. And and they've replaced God for personal ambition. I just don't need God anymore. I just do whatever is right in my own eyes. Imagine living in a culture where you just did whatever you wanted to do. Can you imagine that? Yeah, you can (laughs) That's our culture. I'm at the center of my universe. It's all about me. And so whatever I want to do, whatever feels right for me, whatever seems good, I'm at the center. I've, I've completely abandoned God and now, and now my personal ambition becomes my, my motive for the way I live. I prefer autonomy. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time now you get that's kind of the overview of judges. When you get to the end of judges, you're asking yourself, man, we need another person here. It's got to be a different kind of person. And when you turn into Samuel, you get to Kings. That's next week's sermon. But right right now, I want to just turn back to Judges chapter 6 and 7. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And I want to just to look at one of these cycles and it involves Gideon. It's probably one of the more familiar judges. When you think of judges, typically you think of Deborah, you think of Gideon, and you think of Samson. Those are sort of the most well-known of the judges. And Judges chapter 6, let me read the first six verses for you. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's part of the cycle. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This is all part of the cycle. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of the Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and in the caves and in the stronghold. They're hiding away 
because of the Midianites. For whenever the Israelites planted the crops, verse 3, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and they would leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Imagine that. You're up in a cave and they swarm down on your crops. Both they and their camels couldn't be counted. So they laid waste to the land as far as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of the Midianites. And the people of Israel cried out for help. So you get a sense of what's happening in this cycle. This is a terribly sad state of affairs. These these people in Joshua who are going to be these these great fighters have turned into fugitives. They, they can't occupy the land. They've gone up into the mountains. They've gone into these caves and they're hiding from the, the Midianites all because they've been bowing down to the gods of the Midianites. And the Midianites come in. They're like locusts. There's so many they can't possibly be counted. And in verse 6, they're crying out in distress. And you might be tempted at this moment to think, well, so God, where are you? And God, what are you up to? Let me give you an answer to both of those. God, where are you? Verse 1. I think God would say, you know, you know, I'm right here. I'm delivering you into the hands of this uh, of your enemies because you're chasing after their your enemies i'm just giving them to you in greater number i'm personally delivering you into this painful situation see see the real question when you get into these kinds of situation isn't god where are you it's you where are you you remember when and god comes back in the garden genesis 3 what's the first question he asked to adam Where are you? See, don't be suspicious about where God is. Be suspicious about where you are. And so we're wondering where God is, and God's not the one who's turned away. These people have turned away. And you might ask, well, what what is God up to? And I would say he's responding to these people as he responds to us in a very loving, disciplined way. Proverbs 312, the Lord disciplines those he loves. See, God could have just turned his back on his people completely, but instead he purposely, listen, he purposely put them in painful situations. Why? To try to get them to come back. I'm trying everything to get you to come back. And apparently pain helps you turn your head around. So I'm putting you in a painful situation, hoping you would turn around once again, hoping you would come back to me. And so he's doing this to call himself, call his people back to himself. And and I want to say this carefully because every painful situation doesn't apply here. So I don't want you to say, well, my pain, you know, applies. It may or may not apply, but it applies in many times. It's possible right now that some of the distress you all are feeling is not the temptation of the enemy. It's the loving discipline of God. It's very possible the distress and the pain that some of you are in right now is not something from the enemy. It's actually from God. And it's to get you to look to him rather than to look to the competitor. 
Paul Tripp. He says this, There are times when God delivers you into these situations because in the end, he's more concerned about our hearts running after him than the ease of our situation. See, if you're like me, I'm mostly concerned about the ease of my situation, to be honest. When I'm in ease, everything's wonderful. But God's not primarily concerned about my ease. He's primarily concerned about the condition of my heart. Is it running towards him? Or is it running towards ease or some other situation? See, see, there's no doubt that in this room, there are people who definitely have been rescued by God. You definitely have seen the hand of God. You know what I'm talking about. But this message is a message for the inside people who somehow have said, yes, but I also want this other thing. I've got to have this other thing. And I'm trying to insert that into the center of my solar system. And you're in pain right now, crying out, God, where are you? What are you up to? And he's saying, I'm disciplining you, hoping to get your attention back just to me. No other competitors. And maybe that would be something you'd want somebody to pray for you about. You're saying, yes, that's me. I'm on the inside, but I'm chasing something else. And this pain that I'm experiencing, this agony that I'm in, really is God trying to just get your attention this morning and say, would you turn back to me? Now, what happens next, Judges chapter 6, verse 11, is specifically designed to help you and I and these people understand that all of their hope, all of their hope for rest, all of their hope for restoration is only going to be, is only going to be found by God alone. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now, an angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazanite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, or mighty warrior, as some of your translations would say. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? You hear that question? Why is this happening to me? God, where are you? God, what are you up to? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. And do... And do do not I send you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So the second half of this cycle begins. There's a, there's a distress call. And God responds to the distress call by sending in a leader, sending in a judge. And that judge or that leader is going to be Gideon. Now, when you read this, these few verses, you couldn't find a more unlikely deliverer, deliverer than Gideon. Gideon gets an F in terms of leadership qualities. 
And let me just tell you what I mean when I say that. First, he's got a, a, a fear problem. He gets an F because he's got a fear problem. He's hiding in a wine press. If you know, and have you ever seen anybody thresh wheat before? You have to be out where there's wind. You have to be out where, where people can see you. Wind is generated. So you, when you throw up the wheat, the chaff blows away and the kernel comes down. Here he is. He's hiding probably in some cave in a wine press. And God's going to send this man who's fearful of the Midianites to go battle the Midianites. So this isn't a good start. The second after that he gets is he has a faith problem. Do you see how, how he responded? He's questioning this angel of the Lord. Some people think this angel of the Lord, when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, it's called a theophany. It's a physical appearance of God in the Old Testament. So whether that's this or not, he's still questioning. The, the angel gives a message and he's questioning God and he says, you say God is with us. You know, but hey, buddy, I'm looking at my current circumstances. It doesn't look too good from my, my vantage point. It doesn't seem like God's doing a very good job. I mean, why would God want me to live in this kind of painful situation? And I wonder if you've ever done that. You've used current circumstances to actually blame God. You use your circumstantial evidence and you become the judge as to how God is operating. This is a very dangerous place to be. And yet God is choosing Gideon. So he gets an F for fear. He gets an F for faith. And he gets an F because he has a focus problem. Verse 15. Did you notice what the angel of the Lord said to Gideon? Three very powerful statements. Gideon receives this visit. First, it's an angel of the Lord. So he comes and God somehow is actually with Gideon. Secondly, Gideon receives this encouragement. The Lord is with you. Third, he gets an identity. Oh, mighty man of valor. See, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at you differently. I can see that you're a mighty warrior. Now, what if that had happened to you this morning? What if God had visited you in your study this morning or me in my study and said, okay, first of all, I'm here. That should be enough. Secondly, I'm with you. Third, you're a mighty warrior. Man, if that had happened to me this morning, I would have tried to jump a tall building in a single bound. I mean, I would have tried something like, wow, at least try to go over this pulpit in a single bound. But what does Gideon do? You notice his response? Hey, you got the wrong address. I'm nobody. I mean, my clan, we're the last of the clan. And in the last of the clan, my family is the last of the families. I'm at the very end. You need to move on. I'm not qualified to be the leader. I'm a failure because I have fear. I'm a failure because I really don't have faith. I'm a failure because all of my focus is on me. It's not on God. And yet this is the person. And this kind of loss of focus, it just happens all the time. And I want you to listen very carefully to this because it ha- all of us have a tendency to do this. In Gideon's distress, in Gideon's pain, in Gideon's fear, it's all caused Gideon's world to get very small. 
and there's no more room for God. Pain has a tend to just reduce things, does it not? You hit your thumb with a hammer. All attention, your whole body is on your thumb. And when you're in pain, it reduces everything to a small little frame. And then you can spend your whole life living in this frame of pain. And it gets so small that when God himself shows up and says, I'm about to do something, you live inside your tiny little frame of pain and say, yes, not possible, God. Let's move on to another address. That happens all the time. It could be where you are this morning. Something painful has happened, and now you've determined God can no longer operate inside of my frame. And then I'd say you've lost your focus. Because the focus is now everything about you, nothing about God. Maybe in the process you feel like you're also losing your faith. So if that's you, I would encourage you to have somebody pray for you this morning. The reason the people of God can maintain hope in the darkest circumstances is not because of themselves. The reason the people of God can maintain hope is because of God. The people of God... The people following after God have their focus on God. It doesn't mean they don't experience pain. It doesn't mean that it's not a long trial or a dark night. But joy comes in the morning. And so I keep my eyes on him no matter the painful frame that I'm in. And at any moment he can and eventually one day he will break through. That's what keeps people moving forward with God. Why would God choose Gideon to be the leader out of this circumstance? Let's hold on to that and let's go to Judges chapter 7. If you thought Gideon was unimpressive, wait until you see his army. Equally unimpressive. At the end of chapter 6, Gideon has come around and he's just beginning to really trust in who God is. And, and he's been given the, the, the charge. You gotta, you gotta lead the charge, Gideon. We're gonna go battle the Midianites. And so, so Gideon does exactly what you would think. I gotta get the biggest army I can get. So he sends out the notice and says, hey, I need everybody who's like an able-bodied soldier to come. And he gathers up 32,000 men. Now, I don't know if that's a lot or a little, but we know the Midianites, they look like locusts. There's so many you can't count. So 32,000 probably in Gideon's eyes wasn't enough. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, then the Lord said to Gideon, Gideon's standing there, he's got his 32,000 men surrounding him. The people with you, now you're just, if you're Gideon, okay, Gideon, you're here, the people with you, yeah, and every, imagine, 32,000 soldiers, they're all leaning in. Okay, what's the game plan? And God leans in and says, hey, there's too many. Now, if you're Gideon, you're like, okay, God. I mean, I didn't hear that well, because it sure sounded like there's too many. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant, Gideon. There's too many of you. And so we need to get rid of some of the people. Now, I don't know what Gideon might have thought at this point. But he might have thought, okay, there's four or five really bad soldiers here, so let's get rid of them. 
How about 22,000 bad soldiers? Two out of every three turn away. And so God reduces the people down to to 10,000. And then he says, okay, there's still too many. Verse 4. And God has a way of whittling down Gideon's army from 32,000 to how many? 300. (laughs) Why would God choose Gideon? Why would God choose just 300 people to rescue his people? Why is that? Why is that the way God operates? Let me give you the answer. Chapter 7, verse 2. The people with you are too many. Listen carefully. There are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest or because Israel will boast over me. And they will say, my own hand has saved me. I want you to listen carefully and understand God's assessment of the human heart here. God's appraisal of the power of pride and the weakness of the human heart. Do you hear what he's saying? You've been in distress for seven years. You haven't been able to grow a crop. Most of you are starving and you're living in caves. You have no hope for rescue. And after one victory, what would you do? You would say, I did it. Do you hear what he's saying? The power of pride in a person's heart. The weakness of a person's heart is they can be in such a terrible situation. God can rescue them with one victory. And at that moment, they can say, I did it. So why would God choose Gideon? Why would God choose 300? So that when when it happens, when the victory comes, all glory goes where? To God. Glory is a wrecker if it comes to you. And if it goes to God, it's exactly where it's meant to be. And God is very sensitive to how weak the human heart is. So I've got to put you in a place that looks like there's no hope. So when I get, when you get rescued, you know it's all about God. It's not going to be about you. That's a very critical piece to understand. Here's how Paul Tripp says it. Your weakness is not in the way of what God would do. It's your illusions of strength that are. Because when you convince yourself that you're strong, you're able, you're wise, you're righteous, then you don't seek the grace that only can be found in God because you think you can do it yourself. I wish I could say I was unfamiliar with this piece of Scripture. But how many times has God rescued me and my heart wants to turn towards me and congratulate me on how wonderful I am. And God's trying to set up a situation to say all the glory is going to go to him. Why would God personally deliver his own people into distress? Because he's a loving father who disciplines those he loves. 
And it's very possible your distress is directly caused by God himself, hoping that you would turn and look towards him. Why would God choose somebody like Gideon? Because God's more interested in changing a human heart than human circumstances. He's using the weak and foolish things of the world to bring about a great victory. So 1 Corinthians one thirty one. let him who boasts, what does it say? Boast in the Lord. So maybe this morning, just to finish, you're here and you're a first-time visitor, you're new. You didn't realize your DNA was to worship and you realize you have the a wrong object at the center of your universe. And you'd like somebody just to pray for you and say, I I need to get God in that spot. But this is a message mostly for people inside the church. People who have said, I have been rescued, but I've been spending the last seven years chasing after the world. And it's killing me. I couldn't tell you how much pain I'm in right now. And this is a message for me to turn back around. Maybe you've lost your focus. Maybe you feel like you've even lost your faith. Maybe you live in fear. If you need someone to pray with you, we'll be here up front. Let's pray together. Lord, judge.